Well, today we come to the greatest story ever told. When you boil it right down, this is it. Paul addressing a church in Corinth with many problems opens his letter saying that we're looking for all kinds of things. Greeks look for wisdom. Jews look for miraculous signs. But we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block for Jews. Foolishness to Gentiles. But to those called of God, whether Greek or Jew, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, let's declutter. Let's shed all of the layers of our religious lives, our experience in church, our sense of accomplishment or failure. Let's dump our baggage and come to the cross of Jesus and let everything else blur and fade and let this be the story in which we find ourselves, our meaning, our relationship with God, the reason we come here week after week, the the reason why we put up with each other here. Amen. Mark 15, beginning at verse 1, page 1015 in the Pew Bible. You will recall from the previous chapter, the Passover began. The Jews reckon a day beginning at sundown. So we speak in Christian tradition of Maundy Thursday as the day in which the Lord's Supper was instituted, but really it was the beginning of Friday, which we call Good Friday. And so the Passover continues after the lamb was sacrificed and eaten and Jesus betrayed by Judas and arrested and put on trial by the Sanhedrin And now, the break of a new day for us, but the continuation of the same day for them. Chapter 15, verse 1, early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council, or Sanhedrin, immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him. Now, Pilate is the Roman authority. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him Jesus over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, And they called together the whole Roman cohort, which is a tenth of a a legion, 
60 soldiers locally here. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed him to serve as a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And I'll probably forget to mention this, so obviously Mark's readers in Rome are familiar with Alexander and Rufus. There is an ossuary, a a container of uh, bones, remains uh, near Jerusalem that has the inscription that was discovered, uh, Alexander, son of Simon, perhaps the same. Uh, When Paul writes Romans, he asks them to greet Rufus for them. Could be the same guy. Anyway, his readers know who these men are, and so he's talking about their father. So, verse 21, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear Jesus' cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Same uh, word that comes to us as Calvary uh, via the Latin. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour or nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers or bandits. You should probably read insurrectionists with him, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 29, because verse 28 isn't in Mark. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, that is noon, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, three in the afternoon. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Aramaic, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the passers-by heard it, and began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. There are uh, later traditions, writings of the Jews, that talk about Elijah coming to the aid, kind of like St. Christopher or something like that in Catholic tradition, to uh, someone in trouble. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, or gave up his spirit. And the veil or curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. I hesitate to preach this sermon. I'm an earthen vessel, and these words are of infinite preciousness. John Calvin warns that we don't add too many words to the facts that are recorded by the evangelists lest we detract from the power with which they speak for themselves. But I'm still going to preach a sermon. Verse 
All four Gospels, of course, focus on these events. They all bring something individual and unique to the story. Familiar with the Baroque composer Johann Sebastian Bach, among his masterpieces are the setting of the passion narratives of a few of the Gospels to music. And I had the privilege, uh, a great highlight of my life, in singing with an orchestra and a choir in Indiana, Bach's St. Matthew Passion. And I had the uh, privilege and honor of sitting next to a, a lovely Jewish woman from my community. And she, finding out that I was a Presbyterian minister, asked me a question. She said, I've always wondered, given what happened to Jesus in his crucifixion, why you Christians call it Good Friday? What a lovely question. What a wonderful opportunity for me to explain why this day was good. Well, that, I think, brings up something intentional in the way that Mark has recorded this sort of bare-bones narrative. It lacks a lot of interpretive editorial comments The facts are laid out. And they invite, they demand that we interpret them. And it strikes me that this story is open to two very different interpretations. It becomes two entirely different stories depending on how you read it. Not because there are two different sets of facts, but there is one story and one set of facts that can be looked at from two very different perspectives. So, which is the true interpretation? One possible way of looking at this story is probably the more obvious, and I think my Jewish friend from back in the choir in Columbus, Indiana, got this interpretation. This story looks like a slam-dunk victory for Jesus' enemies. A complete and utter victory for the forces of evil to carry out their plans. Jesus' enemies those leaders of the people of God, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who comprised the high court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes or the experts in Mosaic law, they had been after Jesus for a long time when they saw how popular he was with the people. They were jealous. As Pilate perceived, they were motivated by envy. Not a complicated story. Something we can all relate to. They wanted to do away with Jesus for a long time. They tried to trap him in his words in public. They tried to humiliate him. They tried to uh, show that he wasn't what he appeared to be, but every time they tried to corner him, they thought they had the right question, they thought they had the right controversial issue to raise, Jesus would respond and answer their question in a way that ended up turning it on them and humiliating them or answering their question with his own question that they were too scared to answer. Over and over again, and the crowds just loved him all the more. And it just made his enemies all the more furious. So they had planned for a long time to carry out his destruction. But how could they do it? They had the dilemma of his popularity and fearing that uh, by doing anything that would harm Jesus, they would stir up a riot among the people and that would bring down the wrath of Rome and they would be in great danger and trouble. They were jealous 
of Jesus because of the threat that he posed for their positions, their lifestyle, all of their privileges, but it would be far worse if they did something that endangered themselves even more. So they were in a dilemma, and last week there was a breakthrough for them. Their dilemma was so many people crowded into Jerusalem for the feast with a heightened sense of national pride because here was the Passover feast that celebrated the birth of the nation of Israel delivered from the oppressor Egypt. And anything could set off the crowd. So how to get to Jesus apart from the crowd? So a breakthrough comes when one of Jesus' inner circle, Judas, one of the twelve, disaffected for his own reasons, comes to them and for a small fee will betray them, tell them where Jesus is, knowing his habits, knowing where he'll go after the Passover meal, that there's this garden over across the Kidron Valley on the way up the Mount of Olives, Gethsemane, where doubtless he will rest and pray in the olive groves. Judas will lead them to the man. He will kiss the man who they might not be able to recognize in the darkness and they will have their prisoner. So, they're delighted. And they have to act very quickly. This story can be read as a tremendous triumph for Jesus' enemies. And we can, for all of their evil and wickedness, admire their ingenuity and the speed with which they acted and planned. They had to act quickly. That very night, <clears throat> they seize him. They make sure they overwhelm him with force. They come with clubs and swords so that there's no question that they are going to get their man, despite the fact that uh, one of the soldiers loses an ear in the fight. And uh, then they have to act very hastily to put him on trial, to come up with a charge before anything can happen, before his disciples can plan how to recapture him and set him free, before the mob gets word of what they've done. So they meet all night and they hold a trial and even though they break all their own rules out of speed and haste and out of their own malice, even though they cut all kinds of corners, they do have to satisfy their own sense of justice in at least finding him guilty of some law that they believe is a capital offense. So they hold a trial, and they bring witnesses, and the testimony is contradictory, but they nevertheless proclaim him worthy of death on the count of A, blaspheming. He claims to be the Son of God, equal with God. Now, we'll get back to that. They don't actually uh, marshal any evidence that disproves the claim that he's the Messiah. They don't... Uh, receive any witnesses or defense on his part that might prove that he is, in fact, the Messiah. But they have their offense, and very dramatically, the high priest tears his robes. They have witnesses that claim, even though it contradicts one witness against another, that he has spoken against God's temple. Well, these two things are high crimes in the minds of the Jews and worthy of death. So they've done their work there, and now they've got the next challenge, because they are an occupied people, because they do not have that degree of self-rule which will allow them to actually execute a criminal. They have to go to the local Roman authority, the prefect Pontius Pilate, who is in town from his headquarters in Caesarea nearby, who is in town for the Passover festival, along with soldiers to try to keep peace and to carry out a tradition that we'll get to as well. They have to go to Pilate, uh, uh, someone who's been reigning over their area with cruelty and barbarity and total insensitivity to the Jewish mindset and religious sensitivities, sensibilities, for uh, four or five years now. They go to this man who knows that they hold them, who, that 
they know holds them in complete and utter contempt. And they have to persuade him that he is guilty of a crime. Jesus is guilty of a crime worthy of death in the eyes of Rome. Now, they know that Pilate doesn't give a rip that he has blasphemed their God or that he has spoken against their holy temple. That's their own matters. They can imprison the man. They can do some physical torture to him. They cannot kill him. But they want Jesus out of the scene. They have their man and they don't want to lose this opportunity. So they overcome this obstacle. They solve this problem by formulating the charge now in another way. So even though in in chapter 14 they had come to the sentence of death based on the Jewish law, in chapter 15 we open with these words that they hold another consultation. What was that consultation about? It was to determine how Jesus could be portrayed as having broken a Roman law worthy of death. And one of the few Roman laws that was indeed worthy of death was high treason. They reframe now the charge in a political way, that it is a threat to Caesar's authority, that it is a defiance of Roman rule over Judea. And that is a threat that Pilate will surely take seriously. And so the charge, this guy says he's king of the Jews. Now, way back when Jesus was born, there was a man who was called king of the Jews named Herod. And uh, he brought the whole country under Roman rule and he was allowed to use that title of king. But after Herod died, his kingdom was split up by the Romans among his sons and none of them was allowed to use the title king. Not until they proved themselves worthy of it in the eyes of Caesar. Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, who ruled over Judea and the city of Jerusalem, was a terrible ruler. He completely upset the the, the Jews by uh, slaughtering 3,000 of them in the temple. And they went to Caesar and complained. And Archelaus was thrown out and commits suicide. And he is replaced then by Roman rulers called prefects, one of whom is this Pontius Pilate. So there's great hesitation, there is great reluctance on the part of the Romans of giving the Jews any sense of national pride by allowing anyone to be called king of the Jews. And yet, here the charge is that this man claims for himself this title without having been granted it by Caesar. They've got a charge that puts Pilate in a very awkward situation. Because as Pilate examines Jesus, and there's a lot more detail of the conversation in John's Gospel between Jesus and Pilate, which is an absolutely fascinating interaction. As Pilate examines Jesus, he does so with a great deal of skepticism about the leaders of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and their motives. He knows that they're acting out of jealousy. He doesn't respect these men. He's very skeptical. And for all the charges, Jesus' response is precisely designed not to deny or admit the charge, forcing Pilate to do something with that. Jesus, when he is confronted by Pilate, are you king of the Jews? does not respond, yes, I am, which would give Pilate a clear pass on putting him to death for high treason, for rebellion against Caesar, for a potential threat to Roman rule. Neither does Jesus say, no, I'm not the king of the Jews, which would be to deny himself. Jesus knows that he is, in a true sense, king of the Jews. He is the promised Messiah. And yet, he is not king of the Jews in the sense in which he's being accused as anyone who wants to claim political power and take it from Rome. So Jesus answers in a brilliant way with these words that are translated, you say. Or we might translate the expression, those are your words. 
neither affirming nor denying. Which puts Pilate back at square one. What does he do? Well, there is a possible solution, and it comes a little later on in the morning with a tradition that he has used to placate, to keep the crowded city of Jerusalem filled with nationalistically fervorous Jews happy with Roman rule. The tradition of releasing a prisoner to them. So this is a way in which he might dispose of Jesus and keep a clean conscience. Conscience, You know from the other Gospels that his wife warned him about a dream she had, that this man was innocent. He himself finds him guilty of no crime, and yet he's scared of the people. He's scared of his job is on the line with Caesar already because of troubles that he's had in his province. So... He says, here's a way out. We'll let the people decide. And I know that the, that the leaders have brought him here at the crack of dawn in order to avoid the crowd among whom Jesus is popular. Surely Pilate knew about these things, about Jesus' reputation. So, now the leaders of the Jews have another problem, another challenge. But they have anticipated it. And what they do is they go and find friends of an an insurrectionist named Barabbas. So, there was some insurrection. In other words, among the Jews were those political zealots, they were called zealots, who would fight for freedom from Rome. They would carry out what, from one perspective, might be called terrorist activity in order to uh, throw off the yoke of Rome. This was happening continuously. And so it's no surprise that there were at least three men who were captured for murder during an insurrection, Barabbas and a couple of friends of his. The chief priests and scribes find some nationalistic, zealot Jews who are supporters and friends of Barabbas and uh, remind them, perhaps, of the custom of the, uh, of the prefect, the Roman governor here, to release a prisoner to them and persuade them to make their way up to the praetorium where Pilate is staying and ask for the release of Barabbas so that any release of Jesus of Nazareth by this tradition could be prevented. We can admire the clever plot and the way they've anticipated all of the problems and obstacles with the solutions that they've come up with. I mean, it's common for preachers to look at the crowds that welcome Jesus on Palm Sunday and then turn against Jesus supposedly here before Pilate and say, crucify him. But understand, it's a little more subtle than that. These people were friends of Barabbas. There is not this unexplainable change of mind on the part of a vast number of people, but this is orchestrated by the leaders to preempt Pilate's attempt to rid himself of this Jesus of Nazareth problem and demand instead the release of Barabbas. And they're working the crowds and making sure that their fervor is kept up, that they demand Barabbas and that they respond to Jesus and Pilate's offer of releasing him by saying, crucify him. In another gospel, it's recorded when, when Pilate says, well, <clears throat> this is your king, that, one of the, that the chief priests shouted back, we have no king but Caesar, reminding Pilate of the tricky position they are trying to put him in. So when the crowd demands and Pilate acquiesces, the chief priests and the scribes have done their job. And they have handed Jesus over to the iron fist of Rome and its merciless cruelty. First he is scourged, which was done to any criminal on death row. The brutality of this treatment is horrific to entertain. Scourging was not limited to any number of whippings. It could go on and on as long as the soldiers 
uh, under the supervising uh, supervision of the centurion, uh, wanted to. And they used uh, whips of leather studded with um, bits of sharp metal or bone and uh, beating this against the back of the victim would shred the skin and the muscle. Other accounts uh, of eyewitnesses of this sort of torture would speak about how the bones and the internal organs were left exposed. It was designed to utterly shred the flesh. Often the condemned criminal would die simply of the scourging. Certainly would lead to a great loss of blood and weakness. And then the cohort is called together of Roman soldiers to have some fun. These men are barbarically cruel. Um, they won't be the, fa- the last uh, law enforcement people who uh, engage in some barbaric cruelty as a way of relieving the tension and the stress of their jobs. But here they have the charge of supervising this unruly city. And they no doubt just despised the nationalistic sentiments of the Jews. And so they have great sport at mocking Jesus who would dare to proclaim himself in some way as a king. They find some cloth of purple to imitate the robe of royalty. They twist together some thorns into a crown. And they mock Jesus by pretending homage, bowing before him, instead of kissing him, spitting at him, and ridiculing him. After they have had their fun, they return to him his clothes, and they lead him away to be crucified. And he, along with any other condemned criminal, must carry the crossbeam of his own cross. It is understandable that having been scourged, he was so weakened that he was unable to carry the crossbeam. And so they grab a passerby, Simon, to do the job for him. I want to pause right there so that we note that Jesus, this is not some comic book superhero. That this is a real man. That this is not Jesus who taps into his divine nature to somehow overcome or minimize human weakness and frailty. Jesus was unable to carry his cross. Then they crucified him, which many experts claim is the cruelest method ever invented of execution. Tying or, in many cases, and in this case, using iron nails right through the bone to pin the criminal to the wood and hoist him up on a beam that was already sunk into the ground. He would hang there until sheer exhaustion from the pull of gravity would lead to his suffocation and death. Perhaps you've heard of the Roman statesman Cicero. And Cicero writes about crucifixion and says, don't use the word, don't speak of it. It's too horrific to even mention. We have in the English language the word excruciating that is derived from this word crucifixion. The charge posted on the cross, King of the Jews, is a way that Rome had of warning the people against any sort of pretense to independence or national pride. You want to try to define Roman authority? Here's what a king of the Jews looks like. Battered and bloodied and dead, like a criminal. 
Crucifixion was a death reserved for slaves or criminals guilty of only the highest crimes. Jesus and uh, these two other friends of Barabbas, insurrectionists, who weren't released. And while hanging from the cross, he is mocked, ridiculed, and he breathes his last. So, there's a story that admits to an interpretation of cruelty and evil, viciousness and malice being victorious. Very sad story, not good at all. But that's not the only interpretation. Beneath, in, and through all of the facts that Mark has presented to us is a story of God the Redeemer working out His plan of salvation. What redemption is, is taking something bad and transforming it into something good. And at every point, this is precisely what is done. As Jesus takes the worst of our sins, the most barbaric expressions of our cruelty, our fallen nature, our hatred, the vilest aspects of a cursed race, and transforms them so that in return he brings us the very sinner's who put him on the cross, grace. This is a very different story for those whose eyes have been opened by the Spirit of God to see what's going on. Well before the leaders of the Jews knew they had a way of getting to Jesus because they had been approached by Judas, Jesus had predicted exactly how things would shake out three times. This is a story not of a, a horrible disaster that has come upon a fine fellow, but of Jesus doing and carrying out with determination something that he had planned to do all along. Three times in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, we read these predictions that he gives to his disciples with specificity with increasing specificity that he would be judged, condemned by the religious leadership, handed over to the Gentiles, that he would be scourged, mocked, beaten, and crucified. And on the third day, rise. Not only that, but this story can be read as the implementation or fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. It's all pre-written without the characters the chief priests the scribes the Roman soldiers Pilate knowing that they are doing so they are carrying out the eternal redemptive plan of God the God who has loved us so much that he sent his son into the world so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life the scheming of the leadership against the Messiah predicted Psalm 2, verse 2. The betrayal of the Messiah by a friend predicted Psalm 41, verse 9. The price that would be got by a betrayal predicted Zechariah chapter 11. The scattering of Jesus' disciples, Zechariah 13. The accumulation of false witnesses bearing false testimony to accuse an innocent man, Psalm 27, 35, 109. The fact that this man would suffer and pay the price for something that he did not do, crimes that he did not commit, prophesied in Psalm 69, verse 4. Scourging of the servant of the Lord, 
suffering innocently. Prophesied in Isaiah chapter 50, he gave his back to the smiters. And in chapter 53, his being pierced as the incarnate God. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Him being regarded as cursed because in the law, any dead man who is, instead of buried with an honorable, decent burial, he is hoisted on a tree and exposed to public view is a sign of a curse. Deuteronomy chapter 21, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that an innocent man, Jesus, was made into a curse for us so that the curse of the law might be lifted from us. The division of his clothes. Gambled for, we sang those words in Psalm 22, verse 18. The mocking of the crowds, why they almost word for word quote Psalm 22 as we sang it, verses 7 and 8. Also covered in Psalm 35. The darkness that came over the land as a sign of God's judgment of His turning on His own Son of pouring out his wrath through the wicked cruelty of men, prophesied in Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. The righteous one being abandoned by all friends, looking for compassion and finding none, Psalm 69, abandoned by God himself, words uttered by Christ on the cross, as we sang them from Psalm 22, verse 1, being offered vinegar to drink. Psalm 69, verse 21. Being delivered over to death. Isaiah 53. Dying before the soldiers needed to break his bones. Psalm 34, verse 20. And you have all of the players in this story, ironically, proclaiming the gospel despite their intentions. You have the leadership of the Jews who, as I said already, make the charge that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah and yet they don't disprove that He was the Messiah, nor do they afford Him the opportunity to defend or prove that He was the Messiah. Now, if they had done that, if they had conducted an unbiased and fair trial, they could have found all kinds of witnesses who would come forward and say, I was blind, now I see. I was lame, now I walk. My daughter, my brother... They were dead and now they live. You put the pieces together. But instead they make a charge. These men who believed that God would come and bring the Messiah to them, they believed that. And yet they make the charge and just let it stand uh, unimpeached without proving it false. The soldiers who dress him up as a king. Hail king of the Jews. The sign posted to ridicule and mock him. King of the Jews. All proclamations of the truth. This is a story not of the, just, not just of the horrible miscarriage of justice and a tragic end to a promising career. This is the story of a man who was determined to surrender his life as a guilt offering in the place of sinners, the very ones who were putting him to death. And so we see Jesus offered, as some local Jews did for all victims hanging from crosses, some wine mixed with uh, a narcotic to dull the pain, myrrh, and they offer that to help relieve a little bit of the excruciating pain that he's going through, and Jesus refuses it. Having made a promise to his disciples, I will not drink the fruit of the vine again until I do so with you in the kingdom. He refuses the wine. He refuses the intoxicant. He refuses the narcotic because he does not want to be relieved from experiencing every nook and cranny, the full depth of our pain and suffering 
a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as Isaiah described him 700 years earlier. Well, there Isaiah gives us these two alternative interpretations. In chapter 53, Isaiah says, We considered him stricken by God, smitten and accursed. But he was bruised for our transgressions. And by his scourging, we are healed. That's redemption. That's God's interpretation of the story. Which interpretation is correct? You don't need to know all of these prophecies of the Old Testament to be open to the message of this story as God's redeeming grace for you. Think of this centurion who at the very end of the story sees exactly who Jesus is. On what evidence? Based on the manner in which he died. He'd probably seen many crucified people die. And they had put, to, put up with, I mean, some of them died in minutes, some hours, some it took days. And the, these minutes, hours, days would be filled with screaming and cursing from those who were crucified. How, how do you put up with pain? What happens to you when you hit, hit your thumb with a hammer? This man looked at the manner in which this crucified victim died and said, this is not just a man. What we have in this story is the completion of a circle opened for us in the gospel in its very first chapter. So go back to chapter 1 in the gospel of Mark with me, please, for a moment. And there you will see the introduction of Jesus in this manner. He goes to John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Chapter 1, verse 10. Immediately coming up out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon Him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are My beloved Son, in You I am well pleased. What we have from heaven is now brought full circle in being given to us on earth. Here at the end, of this story of Christ's death. Verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and gave up His Spirit. The Spirit that came down from heaven now breathed out of the lifeless Jesus. And the heavens that ripped open to express God's favor for this man who would be the Redeemer of the world In verse 38, now that copy of God's dwelling place in heaven on earth in the temple. The veil of the temple torn in two from top to bottom. Not the act of uh, an insurrectionist or any Roman soldier trying to uh, vandalize the temple, but an act of God that removes the barrier between God and man accomplished here on the cross. And verse 39, when the the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The heavens opened, the Spirit come down, the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son, now returned from earth, the veil ripped, the Spirit breathed out and the declaration of who this man is, which is the fulfillment of the entire story, of all the miracles, of all the teaching. Who is this man? The Son of God. And here he is recognized in a moment where we are least likely to think anyone would have that identity when he is cast away on a cross as a common criminal crucified in the most barbaric fashion, put to death like a slave, having been sold for the price of a slave. But in the recognition of who that is, the Son of God, is the full gospel. It can transform your life. 
in recognizing that that one who hung there is not one who was incapable of saving himself as the crowds mocked him. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? They too, preaching the gospel without even knowing it, that if he had saved himself as he was entirely capable of doing by his divine nature, he would not have fulfilled his very mission to save others, to save you and me. And this centurion saw it. Do you see it? Which interpretation is correct? Well, we have to wait to the next chapter. We have to wait to the third day. And then we see which is correct. Let's pray. Father, we bow before this story in wonder and awe. You have brought us together in the church not to choose the color of the carpet or the Walls, not just to build buildings or have programs, but by the power that you give us by your Spirit to endeavor to measure with one another the height, the breadth, the depth of this love that is beyond measuring, the love of Christ for us. And it causes us to wonder... as he endures such cruelty and barbarity, the very murderous thoughts that lurk in our own hearts, that it is by these means that he brings us grace. Not retaliation, not judgment, that he took all of that in our place to bring us to God, as Peter later writes. We thank you, O God, for the bloodshed for the body crucified for our sakes. Lord, help us to hold precious this gift of incomparable worth which expresses how much you love us and how much you desire the restoration of eternal fellowship with us. Lord, in all of our decisions, in all of our comings and goings, Lord, let that be our guide that knowledge. We ask for help in this through Jesus. Amen.